Well, welcome again to Seven Mile Road. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, if you were here last week uh, for service, you heard us preach again through the book of Ruth. And Ajay uh, continued the series by preaching on what biblical manhood is like. Right? And so this week we remain in the book and we're going to consider what it has to say for our women, uh, for womanhood in general. And so, again, if you were here last Sunday, uh, you know that I am in no way uh, qualified to speak on the topic of women as a J is. Because if you were here last week, he disclosed to us that he actually has been accepted in as a qualified member of the National Association for Professional Women. And so if there's, uh, um, that's no joke, he actually has the proof, he has the paperwork to show you. He is a qualified professional woman in our industry this day. And so if anybody should be speaking, it should be him. But another thing is, I, I am no woman myself, if you didn't know this. I am a man, and so I am not, in one sense, qualified to speak on what the, women's, uh, the life of a woman uh, looks like in this world. Right? And so we're already walking into just dangerous territory here, and I am fully aware of what I am about to embark on. And so please be patient with me. I heard one preacher say this week uh, about speaking on womanhood, um, a man speaking about womanhood, what could possibly go wrong? And so there's a lot that can go wrong uh, because what, what we interact with as men and women, we have very different experiences, right? And so we know that going in. So I can already feel every woman's eye peering into my soul, telling me to tread lightly, and so I, I will. I will tread with caution. In fact, one of my main goals today, my, my wife is sitting right over there, so one of my main goals is to completely avoid that section of the <laughs> congregation today so that, so that she doesn't think otherwise of me. So being in Ruth, we, we've been hearing also about providence, and so I was thinking, man, it, it's going to be really interesting speaking on women this week. I was actually supposed to do the manhood sermon, and things changed, and so I'm doing the exact opposite, speaking on women this week. In God's providence, uh, this past week, my wife had to uh, stay about an hour away from our home. And she stayed with my cousin's, uh, at my cousin's house. By God's providence, she was barely there all week. So I had no shot at messing up the week as I walked into the sermon. So that was God's providence this week. Uh, but as, as we face all of these obstacles that would otherwise keep us from engaging this topic, uh, we still believe in God's word, that it can speak to us, speak life and truth for us. And again, as we approach the book of Ruth, we find life and we find truth. And so as we consider this book, we can be sure that there, there are some rich and sobering and encouraging roots that the book of Ruth has to share with us this morning. Right? When we talk about men and women, uh, whether in the church or with society at large, uh, we know it, it's true that the opinions vary all over the place. Right? As we said last week, men who have been called by God to lead, to protect, to provide, we've dropped the ball over and over again. Right? What, are, what are the books and movies uh, that we see on shelves all about this day? Right? You have books of, of that lonely woman or movies of the lonely woman seeking to find the man to fill the void in her heart so that she can gain meaning to complete her. Right? But what ends up happening in real life on the ground so often? As we heard last week, men fail to meet these demands. Uh, we, don't, we don't measure up. Right? We love imperfectly and we love selfishly. Right? They, we misuse women and we trample on women to get to where we want to go. Right? We don't do a good job as men with this. And so men must be the problem. Right? Independence must be the solution. Right? Make your own path as a woman. Open your own doors. Seek complete uniformity of gender roles. 
right? Men, you guys are the problem. You are sinful. We need to pave our own path. And so in the midst of, of the frustration that is understandable, and all the while, it, it's true, but the reality of both men and women is this, and the scriptures make this clear to us, that we are all broken. All right, the problem isn't necessarily men and women and the gender roles or, or how God has designed us, but the fact is that we are sinful and we are all broken. Right, and as we'll consider today from the book of Ruth, in all this brokenness, and in all the opinions that vary around the country, around the world, around even churches, the question that we want to ask coming out of this book is, is God for women? Is God for women? What, what, does it, what does it feel like to be a woman in our culture today, in a church today, whether at a church or at the office cubicle at work? How does God regard you if you are a woman? Right? When life is difficult and the odds feel like they are stacked against you, does God see you? Does God care for you? Right? If you are here and you are a woman and you have felt broken and you feel like you are swimming upstream in this world, I want to say the book of Ruth is for you. We can find comfort this morning in the story of Ruth. And so this week, as we continue in the book, what we want to do is uh, we want to sort of survey the story of Ruth from 30,000 feet up in the air and consider what God, who was intimately, so intimately involved in the lives of Naomi and Ruth in this book thousands of years ago, we want to consider what this God has to say for us today in 2015, Philadelphia, as we sit here today. Right, and men, I don't want us to check out this morning, right, because as we've been seeing, the book of Ruth has much to say for both men and women in different seasons of life, uh, different backgrounds. And so this sermon is also for us. So listen in. Uh, we need help from God to approach this. And so let's pray now, asking the Lord for his help. Our Father, our, our lives are filled with brokenness and sin. Uh, the sin has caused division and bitterness it has ruined relationships and how we view one another. And even our distinct identities in men and women are often disregarded and distorted in our world. And so with all of this, we need your help this morning. Spirit, would you illuminate your words of truth and bring us to believe them? Would you convict us? Would you restore us? Would you encourage and comfort us this morning? We need your help, Lord. And so, and more than the words of men, we need the words of life that come from God this morning. So again, Lord, speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, as we consider the story of Naomi and Ruth and how it speaks of women, uh, I want us to sort of guide our time by keying in on three aspects of their story that will help to guide us this morning. Right, the first is that the book of Ruth teaches us of women who are theologians, right? The book of Reach teaches us of women who are theologians. What do we mean by that? Uh, typically, when it, even historically, when the book of Ruth was considered, it's, it's often uh, just diminished to the story, this love story between Ruth and Boaz, right? It's reduced to something like an intermission, right? A break, a romantic break between the more serious books that surround it. 
And while the love story is a part of this book, and it's real and true, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, that's a real part of this book, and it's beautiful. Uh, but this story is so much more than just about that. Right? This story has at its center Naomi and Ruth, two women, Right? Consider that. In fact, shockingly, when the book opens up, the first five verses of chapter one, what do you see happen? Right? All the men are gone. Right? All of the men in their family, by tragedy and by death, are gone. They're wiped away. And, and so five verses in, the story now centers on these two women and how they will walk through the story in this book. Right? In, in a patriarchal society such as theirs, where men are what give value to women, God has still a wonderful script for these wandering women, and he has not left them or abandoned them just because the men have left, right? So as this story moves on from those initial and tragic verses, you realize that what we are doing as we read through the book of Ruth, what we've been doing even over these past weeks is that we are walking through life with Naomi and Ruth as they walk with God through various seasons of life. Right, through heartache and pain, through joy, and when the skies are bright. Right, this book is largely about what it might look like for women to know God and wrestle through faith. Right, they are theologians. I don't use that term as a matter of intellectual assent or capability, but rather what we mean by women being theologians is that they are devoted to wanting to know and to love and to walk with God deeply. Right? But when we say theologians, it's, it's not also like we're putting uh, them on a pedestal high as if they're spiritually elite or as, as if their faith is so unshakable in the midst of difficult times. That's not what we're saying because as we read through the book, right, we, we see in the pages that even as, as one as Naomi, who is faced with death and struggle, she is shaken. Right? She is robbed of hope and she is plagued with despair. And she is shaken, so much so that she cries out to God, saying that he has acted bitterly towards me. Right? When life hits us hard, as it did for these women, no matter your years of walking with God or the soundness of your doctrine or your theology, our faith will get shaken to its core when we follow God. And that's true of men and of women. Right? But what we learn from these women is that the pursuit of God, to wrestle with God, to love God, to have anger towards God, it's all a part of the journey of the believer. And by their example, it's a picture of pursuing God for women. Right? These women are not passive or unconcerned about God and how they relate with God. Theology and deep study and pursuit of God is not just for the elite Christian or just for the pastor or for the seminary professor or even just for men. Uh, but ardent and strong and passionate study of God and walking with the Lord is for women, right? That's a beautiful thought to consider, that God would have this book to have us walk through life with them as men and women seeking the Lord, right? To look to him with questions that rage within us, right? To be brought to our knees in despair and confusion as we are leveled by the tragedies of life, Right, when often when we are met with sorrow, even as we have seen in this book, you almost don't know what to do. And, and so as we read the story of Naomi and Ruth, we get a picture of what that might look like. Right? And in these dark and honest places of seeking God, of wanting answers, we are graciously, by the hand of God, somehow brought nearer to God.
right? In dark times, by the spirit and grace of God, we are brought near to God as we seek him. And so as I thought about this this week, uh, you might be familiar of a woman in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, in chapter 10. Her name is, is, her name is Mary, and she has a, a sister named Martha, and they are close friends of Jesus. Right, so Jesus comes in, and, and he's in town, and they invite him over for dinner. And so what you see is a scene where Martha is now in the kitchen. She's slaving over serving food and preparing food. Right? She's, she's working hard. And where's Mary? Where is she to be found? Mary's just hanging. She's not concerned about what Mary's doing, Martha's doing. She has no worry in the world. Right? Her legs are kicked up on a pillow. She's just lounging, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. Right? And when Martha sees this, She's like, Jesus, aren't you going to do something? Aren't you going to tell Mary to come help me in the kitchen? And so what happens is Jesus actually tells Martha to relax and commends lounging Mary, who sits at the feet of Jesus. Right? She was a student of Christ, one who listened, studied, and loved truth, and who loved God. Right? Mary, like Naomi and Ruth, was a theologian. And I know probably many of the women now are thinking, all right, after service, I'm heading to some bookstore. I'm going to get all the textbooks I can. And I'm just going to hang. No more kitchen for me. Right? But we can probably tackle that another day. But what I want us to hear is this. Right? Delve in, as, as Ruth and Naomi and even Mary and Luke show us, delve into the pursuit of God with devotion and compassion and, and, and passion for the word of God. Study the Bible, read books, become theologians who love the Lord. Right? Teach your kids from an abundance of wisdom from God. Cling closely to your Father who has given you his word to know him throughout the difficult seasons of life and the, and, and the good seasons of life. Right? Heed to the example of these women to deeply know your God. Second, Ruth teaches us of women who are restored from brokenness. And I think I want to spend most of our time here today, right? The book of Ruth teaches us of women who are restored from brokenness. Sin, we know, has ruined all things, the order of all things, right? And last week we heard of how men can definitely act like, like morons and idiots most of the time. And we, we've dropped the ball over and over again. Uh, but women... We know that you guys are not perfect little princesses walking around, right? You have your own sins. You have your own struggles, right? The book of Proverbs is actually, it uses a lot of clever and humorous language to talk about this, right? Listen to a couple of verses from Proverbs with me. Proverbs 19, 13 says this, a foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continued dripping of rain. I want you to go home and YouTube uh, Mythbusters Chinese Water Torture. And when you watch that video, you'll get an idea of what, what the author is trying to convey to us. Right? What, what it feels like to live with a quarreling woman. Right? It gets better. Proverbs 21.9 says this. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome woman. Right? God seems to really be empathizing with the guys here, saying that, listen, it's better up there just... Just get out of the first floor. Just go to the top of the house because you don't want to be there, right? The next verse, 10 verses later, it says in, in verse 19, it is better to live in a desert 
land than live with a quarrelsome, quarrelsome and fretful woman. Right? People don't go to the desert to live. They go there to die. And so what this text is literally telling us is, go die in a desert. It's better for you to live in the house with a quarrelsome woman. Right? Water torture, Chinese water torture, living on the roof, uh, roof of your house, going to a desert to die, all better than our peachy wives at home, right? When they are quarrelsome. Uh, what's the point of this? Right? I think the, the reality is what we said in the beginning, that we are all broken and we have our sins and struggles, right? Neither of us, men and women, we are not squeaky clean, right? Sin for all of us isn't something that we just tell each other, stop doing that, and all of a sudden, poof, we stop sinning. No, it's actually a lot deeper than that. There's a lot of mess and muck and emotions and expectations all woven together by the single poisonous thread of sin that causes us to stumble and fall, right? It's important to realize that our culture shapes how we view ourselves. Right? How men and women view, our, uh, view uh, how we interact with the world. And often it's in devastating ways. Right? What, what were the cultural expectations as we consider uh, the culture into which Naomi and Ruth walked into? Right? What was the culture telling them? Right? They just lost everything. And now they are returning to Bethlehem. Both women are widowed. Right? Naomi has no son to continue her lineage. And Ruth, she's going back, and she's not even an Israelite, and so she's a foreigner. Their lives are an absolute mess in the eyes of those around him, right? Ruth 1.19 says this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Right? The culture around them expected an heir, expected sons, expected continuation of, of their generations. And what happened? None of these expectations were met. Right? The, the future is not looking too bright for Naomi and Ruth. I was reading earlier this week uh, from a book about the culture in Tanzania, which is reminiscent to the culture that Naomi and Ruth are a part of. Right? In Tanzania, if you cannot conceive of a child as a woman, it is grounds for divorce for the husband, right? And, and not just the child, but also a son, right? Because as many of us are aware, women are not prized, but, but sons are, right? Daughters are not the hope, sons are. And so it's not that just that you have to conceive of a child, but that you have to conceive of a son. And, and so after already the harsh pains of childbirth, imagine being the woman lying on the bed, and you've conceived of a child, but it's not a son. And instead of comfort from your husband, you receive divorce papers because you haven't met up to expectations, right? That is the culture that Naomi and Ruth are walking into, right? They are on the margins. They haven't met expectations. To people on the outside, they are failures. And so that's them, right? That's their story. But what about for us today? in 21st century, 2015. But how has sin and the fall affected the hearts and minds of women today in our culture? Right? What are the cultural expectations that women face today? What are some of the sins and struggles that, that you might experience? Listen to this quote from a woman named Lynn Hirschberg. She's a well-known author, uh, and she 
She posts for the Times and other publications. In this quote, she honestly expresses some of the deep struggles and the thought processes that many women seem to face. Right? She vocalizes what many women may be even unaware that they feel. Listen to this with me. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and un uninteresting. Right? Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. Right? And that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. Right? My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Right? I know this must relate with some of you, because honestly, uh, I, I get this. I, I even understand this myself. This is not necessarily a problem that just women face, but these feelings are things that are, that are almost universal. But there, there is a reality in which sin for men and sin for women can look different. And there are struggles that men face with more and women face with more. Right? And so as sin becomes a re reality in this world, right, it has become a reality in our lives. It has given way to the disintegration of our distinct identities as men and women. Right? It, it's distorted all of it. Brokenness is nothing that we have to convince each other of. Because when we read something like this, we, we get it. Right? We understand the feeling of inadequacy that we often feel that keeps coming up over and over and over again. Our brokenness is real, and it runs very deep. A pastor named Matt Chandler puts the struggles and sins that women seem to, to face largely into two buckets. Right? There might be more, and this might vary for all of us, but largely into these two buckets, and they're closely related with one another. The first bucket is this tendency to compare, right? To compare with other people. This distorted desire for approval and for validation. Right? There's a lot in our culture that tells us what success is and what an ordered life should look like. Right? Whether it be our image, our cars, our families, our homes, you've got to measure up. Right? My house is cleaner. My kids are smarter. My career is better. My heels are higher. My meatloaf is juicier. Right? I, I added that last one just because I didn't want to drop the idea that kitchen is out of the question. Right? So I just, I just wanted, I just wanted, that was probably dangerous. That's, I, sh I should tread lighter. <laughs> but here's what I want us to hear, right? The temptation here, when we hear things like this, would be to say, yeah, I know a lot of women like that, right? It's sad that they have to compare the way that they do, right? That's their struggle. That's their sin. It's easy to look outward. It's easy to do that, to see the sin in other people or the struggle the real struggles in other people, but I would gently urge you and encourage you to allow the Spirit to work in your own heart this morning. Do you struggle with this? Or do you relate with the words of Lynn Hirschberg this morning? The second bucket that he puts forth is perfectionism, right? This distorted desire for righteousness and perfection apart from Christ. There was a study done at Cornell University some time back over the course of a semester for an engineering class. And what the study did was they found that as the class got more difficult throughout the semester, men and women, 
they processed that difficulty differently. Right? As the challenges became stronger, the way they processed that difficulty was different. Men, largely, almost exclusively, looked at the situation externally and said, man, that, that class is hard. That's, that's a hard class. Right? An external view of an objective view, that class is hard. But women, almost exclusively, thought internally and said, I must not be smart enough. There must be something wrong with me. It's not just that the class is hard, but I'm not smart enough to be in this class. And so again, I want to say that it's not as if men don't struggle with these, these things, but women somehow seem to have a unique struggle with this in different ways, one of which I might completely be unaware of. Right? Stats show us that women are twice as likely to have anxiety disorders and more likely to consider suicide. Right? I mean, there's just an incredible and oppressive weight that many women seem to feel on their shoulders for perfection. Every interaction and visit to the house has to be right. All of the ducks have to be in order. My body, my reputation, my image, the children better not make me look like I don't have it all together. And here's what I've realized myself. On top of media, on top of billboards, on top of Hollywood saying that the ideal and perfect woman is possible, I am not helping. I'm not helping one bit. Because here's the reality. I have to confess right, that through subtle words of mine, I communicate to my wife that she has to sit hit on all cylinders all the time. Right? Whether it's a demeanor that I put out or a, or, or a hint here and there, I communicate that you've got to be hitting on all cylinders all the time. There's not much room for error. My patience wears thin, and I become quickly the condemner. Right? Men, how are we doing with this? If you were to ask honestly, how are we doing with this? With all of this pressure of not measuring up, how can one feel content? Right? How can she know that she is lovely and that she is not a failure? How can, they, how can the women in our lives, whether they be wives, mothers, friends, or daughters, feel like they don't have to be perfect? Right? What expectations are we putting on them that God himself is not putting on them? And to cope with the reality of imperfection, what do we do as men and women? Right? We cover up. We put up veneers because we don't measure up. Right? We show the airbrushed version of ourselves that makes things look a lot prettier than they are. Over New Year's, me and my wife, along with my brother and sister, we drove over to Chicago to spend New Year's with my cousins, and it was a great time. Um, and so we posted a, a picture on Facebook. It was great. We had just a nice spread of meat and cheese and, and, and wine, and it was, we all looked happy and like the day was just perfect. Right? And it was midnight, and it was a great night. But what do we often not include in pictures like this, right? Kids peeing on the ground off to the side. They don't make it in the picture, right? Our, our, our messy hair or laundry spread all over the house, right? The arguments that we just had a moment before we took the picture because everyone couldn't get in fast enough, right? The, the, the messy stuff of life is often not what we portray. The images, though, that we put out, they're perfect, right? I literally had a hole underneath my armpit on the picture, but I, I went like this to cover it. But that, that didn't make it in the photo because I didn't want people to see the hole, right? It's amazing the image that we put out, and especially with social media now, 
Everything that you see, it's as if everyone's life, they're eating the best food, they're going to the best hotels, they don't have any issues. But that's not reality, right? It's not the realities of, of messiness and imperfection in our lives that are often riddled with sin. What's the reality? Again, that we are broken, that we sin, all of us. And so in the midst of all of this despair, all of this brokenness, what do the scriptures have to tell us this morning? What does it have to say to broken, imperfect, and suffering people this morning? Turn with, your, with me to your Bibles, or you can look on the screen to Hebrews 12. One, we're going to spend just a couple of moments here. Hebrews 12.1 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right, at the beginning of this verse, it says, this great cloud of witnesses. Right, who is this great cloud of witnesses? That's an epic title, right? But who are these people? What is it referring to? So if you go back to the previous chapter in 11, what this chapter is, is you, you see some major, major heavy hitters in the Bible from the Old Testament. Right? They're like the Rockefellers of the Bible. They are heavy hitters, major players in the Bible. Right? To save time, we'll just pick up at verse 32. This is what it says of some of these people. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the, path, uh, the power of of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Right? This is like Chuck Norris level stuff. I mean, this is, this is like epic theatrical victories that, that the Old Testament is showing us through, through Hebrews. If our vision of our Christian lives were to be patterned after a resume like that, our vision of the Christian life would be one that is filled with victories and success, right? This picture, it, it seems to be giving us something that is great and wonderful and lofty, but something we could never attain, right? It's obviously not our reality. We're not overcoming kingdoms or shutting the mouths of lions. This is not our reality. If this passage ended here, right, we would feel defeated and we would feel worthless in the reality of our mess and our pain, uh, and we would feel like we are less than impressive when we consider the scriptures compared to this hall of faith. But it doesn't end here. Uh, what do the scriptures continue to say in verse 35? It says that some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Following Jesus may not end well for us. And just getting to that end may feel very unbearable at times, right? To wade through the difficulties of life, 
to wade through the cultural expectations that are on us, to wade through pain and suffering and death, to be a Christian in the world and the marketplace. Victory and triumph may never be what we are known for. Right? This passage flies in the face of popular culture that tells us that perfection is possible and that to pursue it with all we've got is what we've got to do. It also flies in the face of bad theology that tells us following Jesus means that health and wealth and prosperity is what God will give to us. Right? The end game here isn't outdoing the Joneses. Right? There are no bright skies in view. But what do the scriptures say of those who haven't, haven't, haven't experienced the mountaintops, haven't experienced the victories and struggle in life? It says of them in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. This is what God speaks of us who are less than impressive, who struggle who are afflicted, who are looked down on, who are overlooked, who don't meet up to expectations. This text helps us to redefine what success in God's world looks like. It redefines the win for the Christian. The bruised, the beaten down, the sufferers, the tired, the weary, so that when we continue reading in chapter 12, as we consider this great cloud of witnesses, this is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, including these who haven't had the most rosiest of stories, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you are imperfect, when you don't compare, when you fail, if you would lift your eyes, lift your gaze and your head to Jesus, fix your eyes on him this morning. Fix your eyes on him when you're at work and things aren't going the way you want it to. Fix your eyes when you are not meeting expectations of family or friends or culture. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is your perfection. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He took on your shame, your sins, my sins. His very blood was shed so that you don't have to be perfect, so that you don't have to compare. And this is a sweet, sweet news for us this morning that we can place our trust and our faith and all of our confidence and security in Christ. Right? And so as we consider Naomi and Ruth, the one shattered Naomi and Ruth are being restored from brokenness. As you read on in Ruth, the story for both of these women start to change. Right? Even the passage that Ebby read for us, chapter 2 from 17 on is looking a lot different from chapter 1. Right? Things are beginning to change uh, the reality is that your life may not be, right? Your life may not be on the upswing. Though that may not 
be your, your story, though it may not even end well for some of us, allow our older sister Ruth to be an encouragement to us. Right? While famine and death and hopelessness was before her, she made the worst possible decision to follow Naomi to Bethlehem, right, away from her homeland. With that, that decision, what she did was she was defying the norms of her culture that would define her by having a husband or a son. Right? Following Naomi to Bethlehem was like giving up on any chance at, at a generation of a husband or a son that gave her value. She was a foreigner there. She was, she was looked down upon. But what made her do this? Was it her love for Naomi? I think that's part of it, but I, I think there's more to it than that. Right? Despite the stares, despite the gossip, despite the fact that her life wasn't perfect or well put together, Ruth decided, in famine or in, or in plenty, in failure or success, my devotion to the God of Naomi will dictate my path and give me my worth. Right? So that even if her life ended in poverty and dejection, while the nights would be very real and very painful, her God would be the full contentment of her life and of her soul. Sin has taken what is lovely to reek of death. But Jesus... He takes that which reeks of death and makes them lovely by his work on the cross. And so ask yourself this morning, are you content with God even when the world around you feels like it is cold and lonely? Lastly, I just want to quickly go through this last, last point, last and final point. Ruth teaches us of women who are indispensable to the redemptive work of God. Ruth teaches us of women who are indispensable to the redemptive work of God. Often in both our secular and church cultures, right, women can be made to feel like they're playing second fiddle to men. That's just the reality of where we live. In the marketplace, it's harder to move up the ladder, right? You may feel undervalued or thought of by your peers as less capable. I was talking with Steph, and she, she's often told me that uh, her struggle at work is very difficult. Because as a woman in the workplace, no matter how hard she tries, it is very hard. Right, last, last football season in November, we had a chance to fly over to uh, Dallas. And so over the course of the season, a glorious thing happened. She converted from being a Cowboys fan to an Eagles fan. She was being sanctified over these years. And so it's been a glorious journey for me. And so... So much so that when we went to Dallas and watched the game, we watched it at her family's house, and she was sporting a midnight green Eagles sweatshirt in front of 30 or 40 of her family members. And it was, it was glorious. I told her that day uh, when I saw her in the midnight green that I, I've never loved her more or been more attracted to her than in that moment. Midnight green. Oh, it was beautiful. She's wearing midnight green right now, actually. Right? But here's the reality that she faces in real life. No matter what she tries... Right? She's never one of the boys at work, or often in the world, or even in conversations. Right? And that's hard. That's something that us men don't really understand. That she can try the lingo, she can go to the golf range, she can try and chum it up, but it's hard. It's difficult to constantly feel like you have to compensate or stand out because you're not, you're not a man, but you're a woman. That being one of the boys in our world is easier, and it's just not an ancient Near Eastern struggle like in the book of Ruth. 
right? It's not just even in the marketplace, but being a Christian itself can sometimes feel like that too. Right? The Bible is set within this patriarchal culture that, in which men are, are prominent parts of every story. Right? It's one thing to agree with or love the design of God for men and women. Right? You can agree with it theor- theoretically and, ag- and love it, but when you're on the ground and actually wading through the deep waters of what that looks like in our world today, it can be hard. And yet, in all of this, what God does is he overthrows the bent of humanity to devalue women. Right? But places them, places Naomi and Ruth in this story at the center of this book. The story of Naomi and Ruth, in and of themselves, as we've, as we've talked, it, t- it shows us how to walk with God, to know God, and how he is restoring brokenness in the lives of women. Uh, but it doesn't even end there. Because as we consider, uh, continue to read, when you flip to the end of the book, the last few verses, what do you find there? You find the genealogy of King David that stemmed from Ruth. It doesn't even end there. You go all the way to the, to the first page of the New Testament in Matthew, Chapter 1. And what do you read? Something amazing. And we've said this before. You read verse 2, and it begins, begins with Abraham, the, the recipient of the covenant from God. And then you go to verse 5, and what do you see there? You realize that Ruth shows up along the way. She's in the lineage. She was part of God's people. And then what do you find all the way at verse 16? Jesus. It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is, who is called Christ. Again, this book is not just some sort of intermission, a romantic break from the more serious books that surround it. It's so much more. One commentator says it this way. On the surface, Ruth and Naomi's battles seem mundane and insignificant. Little do they know what their everyday struggles to survive will actually achieve. God refused to drop them from his script. Instead of banishing them from society, he resolutely moves them to the forefront and recruits them for pivotal roles in the history of redemption. The entire culture surrounding Ruth and Naomi would have said that they are no longer contributing members of society, that they don't matter. And yet God has put the entire future of humanity on the shoulders of these women, right? And as real and as hard as the struggles have been for them, and often seemingly mundane and unnecessarily hard, God has not only not forgotten them, but he uses all of their struggles for survival, death and suffering, poverty and and loss of home, so that Jesus might one day come and save humanity one day through the generations of Ruth. Right? Am I saying that your lives are going to have some amazing and dramatic moment like this? That's not the point. And it's not even the point that you will have sons now that will make your life worth something. I can almost guarantee that's not going to be the end for us. Right? That's not going to be the story that most of us have, a story like Ruth's. But to the women sitting here today, I think we can say this. God knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he has not forgotten you. Your story is a part of and intimately involved in the grander narrative that God has written to redeem the world through Christ in this world. 
Your life is meant to be a means of growing God's kingdom. You are part of God's work to benefit others, to glorify God. You don't matter less to God because you're a woman. But God sees you as a precious daughter of his along with his sons. Jesus doesn't overthrow the unique roles of men and women. No, and he, he doesn't hope that we would blur those lines either. But within our womanhood and within our manhood, he has called us as his children, as those who have been forgiven of our sins, and as those who will live in a fallen world, together working towards its restoration by the sovereign hand of God. And so, as we conclude, we ask again, is God good for women? And I hope, as we've been in Ruth, and as we've considered Ruth today, that you would hear from this book a resounding yes. God is for women. He is good for you. Right? He has spared nothing short of his only son to purchase your soul with his blood. But God really does love and care for you and sees beyond your imperfections. Right? And despite your many sins, as you confess and as you repent of them, Jesus stands as the perfect one who will forever be the righteousness that you could never attain. Your identity is secure in Christ. Your brokenness is redeemed and restored in Christ. You're, you have been grafted in and your story is woven together with God's greater story of redemption. And so how, how does this affect our culture even at Seven Mile Road? Right? Women, how do you see yourselves and how do you relate with others? Allow the truth of the gospel to penetrate the deep-seated sins of your heart to never feel like you need to compare or to, to be perfect. For Christ is your perfection. He is your worth. He's the one who will satisfy and save you when no other pursuit ever will. Allow this to free you to live among other women, right? With grace and humility, not counting yourself as better or feeling the need to appear better. Right? It's okay. We are all broken here. We can be honest. Right? And allow this to cause you to deeply pursue God, to know him, to be theologians who walk with God in both joy and in pain. And allow, us, allow Ruth to cause us to be honest with who we are and to be honest with young women and older women among us, to be for them. Right? If, you, if you are older in the faith, to disciple young women. If you are younger in the faith, to come alongside older women in the faith so that we might have a culture of healthy discipleship here at Seven Mile Road, where we love and care, not compare and gossip, where the culture here would be one of gospel fruit. Right, men, single or married, just as we need grace from God for our many sins, from women and from God, may we give and extend grace to the women in our lives. Be patient. I'm telling myself this, be patient, be encouraging, be gracious. Allow the stories that God has written for our women to flourish. Right? I absolutely realize that this is much easier said than done once you're on the ground and you leave the church. Right? But in the midst of all of that, as you wrestle through its complexities, I encourage you to know that their stories matter to God. Right? That no matter what the world might say, that they are precious, that they are lovely, and that they are valued by the Father in heaven himself. And so, as you wrestle through all of this, um, we need help from God again as we, as we come together to worship and to partake of communion. And so to all of us, the book of Ruth reminds us this morning that God is for you.
pray together.